0: Jada, you're back. I'm back. Come back from Europe feeling. Yeah, do you feel refreshed? Highbrow. Ooh. Yeah, I do. I had my first two week vacation ever. So I did a week abroad and then a week in New York just relaxing with my dog. And I feel pretty good and like happy to get back. You're an entirely new person. Yeah, I needed a break. You know, you never know how much you need rest until you're at home. Until you rest. And your body is just like. I've been waiting for you to do this for so long. (laughs) So I have to ask, did you celebrate International Women's Day? I did, and I actually have a really cool story for that. I was in Madrid on the day, and I got to see the way that they celebrated their demonstration for um, women's workers' rights, which was really cool, because I started off the day in the small town Segovia, and then as I made my way back to Madrid, like, that whole demonstration was still going on into the city. Definitely something I'll never forget. Well, I wanted to keep it going while it's still Women's History Month. Yes. So, today's
1: episode Mm -hmm. features Caroline Criado-Perez, a feminist author and researcher from the UK, and I'm going to be talking to her about her book, Invisible Women.
0: So, I'm excited for this, right. especially a UK. I was just in the UK. So, exactly <laughs> bringing it full circle, bringing it full circle all the way around. Yep, the world. Yes, <laughs> literally. <laughs> well,
1: welcome to the bustle huddle. I am Anna Parsons, and I'm Jada Gomez. And like I said, today we are talking with Caroline Friada Perez, author of Invisible Women Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And Jada, I have to um, confront you. Yes, you said that data is
0: boring i know which is pretty terrible considering my background in like science and math but i tend to not really find numbers or stats very interesting fair enough but i know that we've got a whole new way of thinking about this that might change my mind well i think this interview is extremely interesting i think it will
1: change your mind and also it's less on throwing a lot of numbers around and more about talking about how data influences everything in our lives Mm. like get this we work at bustle Mm -hmm. obviously it's mostly women so if you go upstairs everybody's got a blanket Everybody's got a heater.
0: Everybody's yes. cold. It's so true. I know that I always have like a blanket with me, but I'm not one of the cold girls. I'm just a cozy. Cozy girl? A little cu- <laughs> a cub. So I'm always like cuddled up in a blanket. But yeah, we do have a lot of complaints about people being cold well, pretty yeah. much every day.
1: It's at least a stereotype that women tend to be colder in offices. Turns out there is a reason rooted in data. Interesting. Back in the 1960s when, you know, whoever science person up top <laughs> determined the temperature that they should regulate for offices, they base that on a 40 year old man that weighs about 70 kilograms. And that metabolism is entirely different than women. I'm guessing they probably based it on themselves. Yeah, <laughs> precisely.
0: <laughs> yes. One a, person yeah. <laughs> has determined it for well, all of us.
1: Not only themselves like physically, but also their perspective, which is something that Caroline's going to be talking about in her interview. Everything we do, even the experiments that we run, we base upon our own experiences. And that's natural. Nothing's wrong with that. You're not committing a sin. But all the more reason to get more women up in the top, up in these STEM fields, so we get a broader spectrum.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that is really interesting. I mean, I feel like my mind has already changed because how many things... Are going on in this world that are ruled by data that we're not even aware of. You, know, you got to think about it. Probably a ton.
1: Well, listen up to this interview and tell me what you think afterwards. I'm so into it already. All right, let's go. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, um, as I was just saying before the interview started, I really enjoyed your book, Invisible Women Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And I guess we should just start from the top. What data bias are you referring to
2: and how did it result? So what I'm talking about is basically that the vast majority of information that we have amassed in the world throughout history has been based on male bodies and typical male life patterns. And the result of that is that women are inconvenienced. They are seriously injured and sometimes they die because we have designed the world using information about only half of the world.
1: And so you're saying everything from our transportation systems to the inventions that we use on a day-to-day basis that these are all designed with typically men in mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, you know, to answer the second part of your question about how that came about, essentially it's because for millennia, we have been used to thinking of men as the default, the standard human, and women not as half of humanity, not as you know equally likely to be a human as a man, um, but as a kind of variant on standard male humanity. And you know, if you go back to Aristotle, you know he was actually articulating that completely openly saying that the first departure from type is indeed that the male should become female. So, you know, it goes back a really long way. Um, No one is saying that now, and I don't think anyone is, you know, logically consciously thinking that, but because we have this long history of sort of framing the world this way and continue to, when, you know, you look at the media, when you look at what we teach kids at school in terms of, you know, the history that we teach them, if you look at the films that we produce, the vast majority of it is still focused on men and having women is a uh you know sort of an added extra a sort of an exciting bit of spice to throw into the mix but not sort of seen as the center of humanity
1: yeah there's an interesting part towards the beginning of your book um which was forgive me if I'm wrong, but perhaps the origin of this endeavor was the word man and person, like coming to realize how many people assume that that means a man.
2: Yeah. So that was a really interesting study looking at how people perceive a range of gender neutral words. Um, So, you know, we know that male default sort of generic male words like he to mean he or she or man to mean humankind um it's fairly well established now that people do not read those gender neutrally that that you know they conjure up pictures of men unsurprisingly um although I have to say it was actually a surprise for me when I realized that I was picturing men when I heard the word he and when I heard the word man because I'd been so used to thinking oh it's gender neutral and I and, and it was really shocking to me I didn't realize till I read this book that said women picture a man and I was 25 and it was so shocking to me to realize not only that I was doing that but that somehow for 25 years, I hadn't noticed.
1: I did the same thought exercise with myself. And right. what you say in the book that you're more likely to even think of a man when you think of a profession, such as um, professor or lecturer or scientist, yeah. um, it's totally true. Yeah,
2: and but, but we just don't notice that we're doing it. You need someone to point yeah. out that you're doing it because you're so used to it. It's just so natural. And yeah, similarly for these gender neutral words, so person, uh, user, participant, researcher, They got people to picture whatever they thought that thing looked like and then draw it. And the vast majority of men and women drew men for those words. The only time that women were 50-50, as opposed to, you know, 70% drawing men, was for person. But men were still drawing a man 80% of the time for the word person, which is quite shocking, you know, when you think about that. Yeah, it absolutely is. But I think it also highlights that this is a systemic issue you know this is not Mm. uh, a conspiracy this is not a case of woman hating it's it's a case of a pervasive way of thinking that we just do unconsciously and so in a way that kind of makes it harder to deal with because it's not malicious but then on the other hand it being systemic uh, at least there's there's not a sense that you have to sort of change people's hearts you just have to change their minds
1: (laughs) yeah it's like we have to deprogram ourselves yeah and I want to get to that later how we do start to deprogram ourselves but let's go into some of the specific instances of you know this in execution so I think we could start with the morning I think most of us go on our commute and Mm -hmm. the transportation system itself as you explain in the book has been designed with men in mind first
2: yeah so I think one of the best ways of explaining this is actually an anecdote I used to, to open that chapter, which is how this town in Sweden discovered that while you may think that your snow clearing schedule has nothing to do with gender, um, actually it turns out it has a whole lot to do with gender. So this being Sweden, and obviously the Swedish people <laughs> yeah. being perfect, right. they were doing a gender audit of all their policies and they looked at snow clearing And the way that they had always done the snow clearing had been to do the major road arteries first and then to do the local roads and the pavements or the sidewalks. And they realised, analysing female and male typical travel patterns, that this was prioritising male travel over female typical travel. So men are more likely to drive and they're also more likely to just do a very simple there and back twice daily commute on major roads now, women because of their unpaid care work responsibilities are more likely to do a type of travel that's called trip chaining which is lots of short, interconnected trips and they're more likely to use public transport and this is partly because women are less uh, tend to have less money than men um, but also even in households where there is a car men tend to dominate access to it So women will be using public transport and therefore they'll be walking more and they're more likely to be, for example, accompanied by children, pushing buggies. And so the town councillors in Sweden decided to switch it up because they figured it was easier to drive through three inches of snow than to walk or push a buggy through three inches of snow. So they just sort of thought, well, it won't cost us any more money and this makes more sense. And so they changed that. And then they suddenly found that there was this significant drop in their healthcare bill. And basically that came about because unsurprisingly, as they had figured, it's more difficult to walk through three inches of snow. And actually pedestrians were making up a huge proportion of the number of people who were admitted into accident and emergency with all sorts of injuries for having fallen over in the ice and snow. And a vast majority of those admissions were women as well, because women were more likely to be pedestrians. And the cost of those accident and emergency admissions was far, far higher than the cost of winter road maintenance. So not only did they not cost themselves any more money by prioritizing this type of travel, um, they ended up saving actually a lot of money.
1: That's incredible. So in addition to the uh, perfect Swedes, you also give some shout outs to Barcelona and Vienna in particular for mm-hmm. starting to you know make their public spaces more friendly towards women can you talk more about that yeah
2: so well basically what vienna discovered i mean vienna is very very lucky because they have the the mother of gender planning in urban environments called eva kyle and she is is sort of a world renowned expert on this now and and cities around the world ask her advice because vienna is really a world leader in designing cities to cater for for women basically so they've done incredible things like specifically designed social housing to account for women's unpaid care work needs so things like where is the nearest school what are the local amenities will women feel safe in this environment you know have they thought about Mm. lighting and stairwells and natural light and eye lines and can I see the kids when they're in the park and I'm having to do something inside.
1: Yeah the park bit was interesting to me when you talked about getting more women even into parks because the numbers start to dwindle around age 10.
2: Yes so the other thing that they did was they did this study looking at usage of the park and they found that girls and boys use the park equally until as you said around age 10 and suddenly girls stop using it and they looked into why this is and essentially it was partly that the design of the park didn't account for female socialization which is that the boys were very confidently using these big spaces and the girls didn't want to compete with the boys for the space um, and so they just stopped using it and so what they did was they subdivided the park into smaller spaces and suddenly the girls came back and again that's such a just small and easily implemented approach and intervention but it makes a huge difference and I mean I think that you don't really need to justify why you should make parks equally accessible to girls and boys it's obviously unfair if girls are being sort of designed out but you know if you're if you're a Grinch and and you think that it doesn't matter that girls don't have access to parks or feel intimidated and don't want to compete with the boys you should bear in mind that we have a, a potentially big problem with girls, um, in terms of if they're not being active enough, uh, mm. developing osteoporosis later in life, and then being a huge burden on the public healthcare system. So, you know, again, there's, I think there's often with feminism, or with feminist interventions, there's often a justice angle, but there's often also an economic angle.
1: Right, right. And I think that's why your work is so important. I know a lot of uh, Americans may not be familiar with your work, but I think a lot of people in the UK will be. Um, you got Jane Austen on the back of the banknote. You also got a statue of Millicent Fawcett in central London. And you were um, you were met with a lot of resistance to those simple acts.
2: I was, yeah. Um, so the banknotes campaign was basically the Bank of England announced that they were removing the only female historical figure that they had on their banknotes. So we've got four banknotes, one woman, they were getting rid of her and replacing her with Winston Churchill. And so I started a campaign to say, please don't do that. It's <laughs> a really stupid idea and was eventually successful. And they said they were going to put Jane Austen on the back of the £10 note. And literally the next day, or it might have even been that afternoon, I started getting deluged with rape and death threats um oh. just really detailed and graphic and just coming in every minute. And it went on for about 3 weeks and you know eventually we pressurized Twitter into changing their reporting procedures because at the time I don't know if you remember this but at the time there wasn't an easy way of reporting you had to go to a different website you had to fill in a form for every single threat and say what had been said and explain why it was threatening and you know this was stuff like well right, I, I doubt yeah. I can repeat it on your podcast but it's the kind of stuff <laughs> you don't really want to be typing out you know yeah, um, yeah and not only that but also just practically from a perspective of time when you're getting thousands of these things in you would become a full-time job to report them all so things have become a lot better from that perspective um, but it was not fun going through it to get that to happen but, you know, yeah, I think but- that that is also, I mean, I don't think you can separate that from the way things are designed not to account for women. I don't think if you had had women designing that platform, the idea that women get abused online would have been so far from the central design of the platform. I don't think you would have had such a complicated procedure but it's not surprisingly, I didn't think of this because they're guys, that's and not their experience. Yeah. exactly. and so for for me, one of the really important takeaways, I think, and I hope that people take this away from the book, is that female representation is not some you know silly tick box exercise that you know you just say, well, we've got one one woman here, and, and you know that'll do. This has a direct impact on women's lives. Um, another example I think that's really interesting is, just because it just really sums up the whole issue of why diversity particularly at the top matters when Cheryl Sandberg was working at Google and got pregnant and was struggling to walk across the car park and you know she was in a senior enough position that she could go to the head of Google and say you have to put in pregnancy parking and he said yes of course I'd never thought of that and you know she says that she felt bad for not having thought about it But again, that to me just highlights why diversity matters.
1: Yeah, without women at the top, especially in these STEM fields, which are, you know, more and more taking over our lives, you Mm. end up with um, products that just don't quite work for women. I had never thought about the smartphones being too large for one. I, um, I think it's partly because I am almost six foot tall. I have huge hands, right so, but you actually explained that because they're oversized, it actually leads to hand and arm health issues for women.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I came across it because that literally happened to me. Um, I got an iPhone six, and suddenly I developed this horrible RSI and it was really bad and it went when I went back to a smaller phone but of course phones have just been getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so it's it's funny like there have been there were a few things that people have particularly picked up on from the book and there's basically a whole community of us who are all absolutely furious that the iphone se has been discontinued (laughs) yes Um,
1: yes and its processor was already slower than the others so exactly so we're already
2: on this less good phone but we are sticking with it because it's the one it's it's good enough and it works with our hands and now they've discontinued it and you just sort of so what am i supposed to do now and it's just frustrating you know i mean it's not (laughs) no one's pretending that this is a life or death scenario but it's just I mean the point of the book really was to include the whole sort of range of issues from the just irritating which is the phone to the life or death which is you know car crashes and heart Mm, attacks and all sorts of areas where women are not just being inconvenienced and you know developing RSI which I don't think actually is acceptable if you're paying you know $500 $500 for a product. But anyway, it, you know, it's not as bad as dying. I mean, so, uh, but, but it was important to me to show how pervasive it is and how it isn't just sort of some isolated incidents. It really is everywhere.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So
1: something I really want to talk to you about is um, tech Mm -hmm. and also the increasing surveillance system, AI, etc. I find it really interesting that especially a lot of the AI systems like Siri and Cortana and who else do we have? Alexa, they're all female. Mm. But are these algorithms really at the end of the day serving women?
2: I mean, no. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, what's even more interesting, I think, is when you think about it. The sort of servile AIs, so the ones you've mentioned, Alexa, Cortana, Siri, they're female. All female. IBM's Watson is male, and that's the sort of really super smart, clever AI. (laughs) And I mean, that really does sort of tell sums it up, right? Yeah, quite, quite a lot about what's going on in the tech world. So, but, but it, it gets worse than just sort of repeating sort of sexist tropes, because another huge problem with basically all the algorithms, as far as I can tell, is that they are trained on highly male biased data sets, including voice recognition software. So, most of the databases that they're trained on are heavily dominated by male voices. And so these voice recognition algorithms do not recognize women's voices by, you know, a much larger degree than than they struggle to recognize male voices. So just um, because of training? Yeah. So it's basically the data that they're trained on is is male voices. And so they don't recognize women's voices. So um, I had this just after sort of writing about that section in the book I was in the car with my mum and she was trying to get her voice recognition software to call her sister and she was getting completely infuriated because it just wouldn't understand her and I suggested why don't you try lowering your voice and it it did in fact work first time after she tried that so but I mean there's there's so many examples of, of of that of of it just basically not responding to women only responding to men and again you know you can say well that's not life or death although it could be if you're distracted by your car software not working and then you crash Um, and then of course let's not forget that women are 47 percent more likely to be seriously injured and 17 percent more likely to die if they're in a car crash
1: because of the crash testing correct that that's been also designed for men
2: yes well i'll come back to that in a second but the, the thing the issue with the algorithms is just that you know, so you've got the voice recognition software, but then you know algorithms, as you say, are increasingly becoming heavily involved in our lives. You know they're already being heavily used in recruitment for jobs, scanning CVs. sometimes they're even actually conducting initial interviews. And again, if you're basing the data on what success for a man looks like, um so there was this uh this special coder hiring software. That was meant to find, you know it was meant to help you find the best coders um, and sort of had this sort of clever way of looking at your social metrics, your online metrics, beyond just your CV. And one of the designers of this code mentioned that the algorithm had discovered that a successful coder, a one mark of a successful coder, was visiting this particular Japanese manga site. Well, anyone who knows anything about the internet, about manga will know that those types of sites do not tend yeah. to be very welcoming to women. Also, women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work. In the US, uh, men have five hours per week more leisure time. So not only are women less likely to want to be in those not very welcoming to women's spaces, they also don't have the time. So you're suddenly building this idea of what success looks like around something that is much, much harder for women to achieve. Um, and, and the other worrying thing, of course, is that most algorithms are protected as proprietary software. So we don't even get to see this. We don't know this. We just happen to know this because one of the designers let slip. But who knows what else is hiding underneath there? And then when you look at the, the, the you know, you start thinking about the fact that the tech world is talking about introducing algorithms into medicine and the incredibly male biased data there and how that really genuinely is life or death. Plus you factor in the fact that machine learning is meant to get better and better all the time, which if you're feeding it biased data, means it's getting more and more biased all the time. This is a terrifying world that we're heading towards. And I have no confidence that coders understand what they're playing with here. You know, the the person who revealed this thing about the manga sites, Just revealed it as a point of interest like this is just a fun quirk we discovered they had absolutely no concept of the idea that this was in any way biased against women
1: yeah and a lot of the sites that are geared towards women let's say instagram for example they collect quite a bit of data especially consumer data on women which i find concerning so the attention that they are getting may not necessarily be positive or constructive
2: yeah well i mean i suppose i mean the the privacy acts aspect is a concern again if the tech world doesn't understand the way in which women can be preyed upon by abusive men. So, you know, mm. unless things are designed to account for the fact that male violence does exist, these can be very concerning tools from a, for example, domestic violence perspective. Um, and then there was that awful app, the Guardian app for Saudi Arabian women. Women so that oh, their husbands yeah. could be alerted if they tried to leave the right, country. if they. And oh yeah. You just, how did that get allowed? How did, how did that um, get through? But but it did get yeah. through, and and technology makes that post possible.
1: People are starting to use fitness apps for the same purpose to um to watch their spouses and their partners. Right,
2: and the security settings are not set to privacy by default. They're set to sharing by default which may be fine if you're a, you know, big six foot three burly man. But <laughs> if you are a woman, particularly a woman in an abusive relationship, not so fine.
1: So what can we as individuals do to change this, to, to make the small changes necessary?
2: Um, so, I mean, it's, it's partly a matter of awareness you know, I don't think you necessarily need to be a politician or someone who works in policy to change this. Obviously, it's very important for them. But there are plenty of people who work in all sorts of areas, where talking about collecting sex disaggregated data, designing things to account for women is possible for them to do. And it would be great. I mean, if everyone were talking about this at work, you know, I feel like we would see progress quite quickly. Um, And outside of work, one of the simplest things I think people can do is to start marking the male so and you know not allow it to occupy the default not allow it to occupy this sort of fake gender neutral I mean so every morning I wake up to the BBC World Service and I hear the news and I hear sports news and it makes me it pisses me off every day basically because whenever they say and now for the sport They mean now for the men's sport. And Mm. yes, it's a small thing, but this is part of this system where the male is the default and that is what makes it possible for us to ignore, forget, not realise that we're excluding women. Um, And I think if people were forced to say all the time men's football when they mean men's football rather than just saying football and women's football, men's films and women's films or whatever it is, it's always the women that gets marked. It's never the men. The men always get to just be the standard. And I think that we don't think of that as important because not enough people realise what the impact of that is in things like medication, where the vast majority of data is being collected on male bodies. The impact on, as we briefly mentioned, in car safety design, where the typical car crash test dummy is based on a 50th percentile male. So all these times that we implicitly and unconsciously emphasize the way that men are the default human throughout our daily lives, those are contributing to these much, much more serious issues and you can't really separate the two. So I feel like that's a really simple thing that everyone can do is just to start marking the male. And if everyone were to do that, I think it would make a really big difference.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Another big thank you to Caroline for joining us, for calling in. I really appreciate it. And Jada, thank you for you know listening to something about data for yeah, 25 right. Minutes. I know we
0: did have this conversation about this episode, and I was like, oh, data is boring. But I've learned so much, so I'm glad that we figured. Yeah. I'm glad that you stuck, that you, stuck <laughs> you stuck with this and and showed me the value of it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Math matters. Math does
0: matter. <laughs> well, and, and thank you all for listening to another episode of The Bustle Huddle. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Anna Parsons and Michaela Heck with help and love from Zan Salvatore. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And definitely leave us reviews on iTunes because we'd love to get your feedback. You can also reach us at huddle at I'm your host, Jada Gomez. And I'm Anna Parsons. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye,
2: guys.